Snow Removal by James Ellison Wills Me Shimashima is a small village in the mountains of central Japan. It rests in a deep forested valley along the Azusa River. It is often shady when not overcast. In winter, the cheeks of the village children chafe and crack from the freezing wind. We were in the village as the result of accepting an invitation from the owner of a mountain lodge. Our hiking and climbing group stayed at his lodge during our trips in the spring and fall. The kindness and generosity of our hosts kept us warm. The Camillos took us in, arranged for a rental house, and treated us like family. Shimashima was a few curvy kilometers above the last stop on the trolley line from Matsumoto Station. It was only a bus stop on the way to the North Alps. Little bit local traffic passed the village. It had a hardware store, a small grocery store, and a post office. In the forest near the village, it was possible to catch a glimpse of the monkeys wintering from the highlands above. I spent the winter of 1984 in Shimashima. My wife, our three-month-old daughter, and I were the first foreigners to ever live in Shimashima. Up to that time, for most of my adult life, I had lived in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. My mountains had big snowy winters and fragrant pine summers. I knew about the mountain life. I knew how to drive in snow and knew too well about the constant chore of bringing in wood for our wood stones. We weren't the tough mountain people of the Himalaya, but we weren't flatlanders either. Mountain people know what I mean. Shimashima wasn't built for tourists. Having an invitation by a prominent family of the village was not enough for us to gain acceptance. We needed a reason for being in Shimashima. I discovered that it would drive the Japanese crazy if we couldn't articulate why we were there. In Japanese society, hard work, sweat, and devotion to duty are worthwhile values. Idleness without purpose is not part of their culture. So, I told those asking that I was a writer and found the peace and quiet of Shimashima perfect for working. This made sense to them and justified our presence. People rested easy with this white lie. They believed we weren't just sitting around all day trying to stay warm, which we were. Life in the village required adjustments on our part. As only students of the language, we always had trouble in the grocery store. We had no idea what we were buying, and many times the meals we cooked were a surprise. Hearing spoken English gave the local policeman a headache. So, he sent his wife instead to come by our house and ask how old we were and if we were male or female. This was to keep the records for her husband's office up to date. We began to understand the difference between an honored guest and a resident alien in Japan. The honored guest need not buy their own kerosene heaters. The honored guest wasn't registered with the police. The honored guest was a visitor, not a resident, looking for a little acceptance. Ronald Reagan was president, as I read our English copy of the Daily Yomiuri newspaper. First he said it was a strong dollar that was good for America. Then he changed and said that a weak dollar was good for America. We only knew that the exchange rate had gone from 240 yen to the dollar 
to 150 yen. Everything was expensive. Our rent was humble, and we didn't use too much kerosene. We had enough money to pay for our stay, and nothing else. The three of us lived in an old Japanese farmhouse built in the Taisho era, sometime between 1912 and 1926. It had slick, dark wooden floors in the hallways and three tatami matted rooms. The screens between the rooms were painted in ink with mountain scenes. The kitchen was medieval. There was no hot water, and a piece of plywood covered what had been the cooking fire pit in the center of the drafty room. The high wooden rafters were black with soot from years of cooking fires. The house had no insulation. The windows rattled. The paper walls didn't keep in the heat. We had to let the water in the sink run at night to prevent it from freezing in the pipes. Every meal came from our Toshiba electric frying pan placed in the center of our kotatsu table. Instant coffee water boiled on the single propane burner in the kitchen. The soji screen doors had little butterfly paper patches from years of children poking their fingers through the paper. We positioned our three-month-old baby under our kotatsu blankets with her head sticking out. In the old days, the kotatsu ran on charcoal, but our modern one was electric. Under the warm kotatsu blankets is where you're apt to find sleepy children and people with warm toes. We burned kerosene for heat, and everything had a slight kerosene smell. Every night around 11 o'clock, without fail, I heard the sound of a wooden clacker. It reminded the villagers to extinguish all flames. Time to turn off the kerosene heaters and make sure the burner on the kitchen stove was off. Each night, someone from the village walked and clacked the two blocks of hardwood together. The duty came to every house in the village, one week at a time. The clack-clack served more than just as a reminder to be safe with fire. It was a tip that it was bedtime and time to fill our utampos with hot water from the teapot on top of the kerosene heater. These metal utampo hot water bottles warmed our futons as we crawled into the cold cotton comforters. In a town with paper walls and wooden houses, fire prevention was a constant concern. Residents of the village had an irrevocable membership in the volunteer fire department. On occasion, they would visit village homes and remind the people to be careful with fire. I was not a member. On such an occasion, I was home alone. There was a knock on the door from two firemen in full regalia, including helmets. They bowed and stepped into our entryway. They bowed again and said, or at least I understood them to say, is Mr. Hinoji here in Japanese? Something like Hinoji-san onagaishimasu. I prided myself in my rudimentary Japanese if someone wanted to see me, they would say my name and then onagaishimasu. I replied, Mr. Hinoji is not here. I am Jim. Thank you. The two firemen looked at each other. They looked puzzled. They bowed again and repeated themselves. I thought maybe they hadn't heard me or my accent was hard to understand. I repeated myself in my best conversational Japanese. I knew this would gain me needed acceptance. Mr. Hinoji is not here. I am Jim. I knew they heard me this time, but it didn't work. They looked more puzzled. The two of them started shifting from foot to foot. They repeated themselves three or four times, with me, of course, 
replying. They bowed again, slid the door open, and made a quick exit. I was confident as a linguist and thanked them for their visit. I told them to be careful and thanked them again, punctuated with a few bows that were returned in kind. I was glad to know that I was normal enough to know where Mr. Hinoji was. It pleased me that they'd come to ask, but I had no idea who Mr. Hinoji was. A few days later, talking to my Japanese friends, I quizzed them about the visit from the fireman. There was much repetition of the incident and questions about my pronunciation. Finally, they agreed that the fireman had said, Be careful with fire. My response to the fireman, my repeated response was, Mr. Careful with Fire doesn't live here. My name is Jim. The next time someone came to the door, I was extra careful. The power company man came to collect cash for our electric bill every month. I'm glad I had enough money to cover it and was not surprised that he had change. Tolerance for our presence in Shimashima was all we could expect. Acceptance was but a dream. We lived in the village, but were not of the village. We could live in this harsh environment, so it was clear we had enough grit that counted for something. But we knew we weren't part of the community. To top it off, we were traveling with an infant. We claimed it was in some ways easier, but that wasn't true. It was easier when it came to clearing customs. It was easier for standing in lines and people shoving or not shoving because you were carrying a baby. Sometimes travel was harder. But our pink little baby, cooing and batting her blue eyes, broke down many cultural barriers. Our host's Obachan grandmother spent hours holding and rocking her. The rubber meets the road traveling with infants at bath time. In Japan, it's bath with a capital B. Everyone takes a bath every day, sometimes twice a day, and sometimes all day long in the popular hot springs, onsens. The bath is the main feature of life in these mountains. It's the only time of day when you can get warm all the way through. The Ofuro Japanese bath starts with a complete soaping up and rinsing off outside the tub. This before soaking in hot water. The variety of the baths run the gamut. There are marble tubs with heated waterfalls in faux Romanesque settings, or it can be in a deep wooden tub next to a short plastic stool on the concrete floor of the generator room in a mountain hut. Household baths are compact and in almost every Japanese home. Water temperature is critical. Too hot can result in burns. Too cold is no fun. When bathing with an infant, it is best to use one of the little floating plastic boat thermometers. If the water is not the right temperature, the infant will scream. If it is just the perfect temperature, the infant may relax a little too much with an unpleasant result. And these bathing rooms are not heated. In such a case, the tub needed clean water. Meanwhile, the baby lays on a towel on the floor, shivering while the tub fills. It's a big process, and splashing in the water with your baby is only one part of it. While in Shimaoshima, we couldn't use the bathhouse at our home. It was the same vintage as the old farmhouse and built in a day when people were hardy. It was an outbuilding, wood-fired, and the air temperature was never above freezing. 
These were almost criminal conditions for bathing a three-month-old. Our hosts invited us to use the bath in their home, and we did, every day, for the entire time we stayed in the village. We learned to say, in the best way, thank you for letting us take a bath before you, in Japanese. And we also learned about after-bath tea, which meant eating. We learned all about the teas. There was morning tea, after-breakfast tea, there was afternoon tea, and then there was after-bath tea, after-dinner, and a warm soak. In this cold climate, eating seems to help. Plus, tea is around a cozy kotatsu, and it is a chance to get warm. We felt welcome with our friends, even though we lacked community acceptance. The village radio was kind of neat and also kind of creepy. I don't know if you could turn it off or if it was always on. I never tried to fool with it. Ours was above the door in our main room. It came on once a day at six in the evening. My Japanese was getting better, but I could only understand part of it. I listened for yukikaki, translated as snow shovel. It was a call for the next day's snow shoveling. On yukikaki days, every household produced an able-bodied person with a shovel, each at their assigned shoveling station at six the next morning. The village was responsible for snow removal. The choice was between taxing themselves enough to buy snow removal equipment or do it by hand. Of course, it didn't happen every day. It only happened when it snowed six inches or more. The village opted for the snow shovel. One snowy evening, the village radio came on. I heard the call for Yukikaki the next morning. I was ready. Those dressed for the day were warm and waterproof. The rest of us got melted snow down our necks. It was a few minutes before six, and I dressed, got my borrowed shovel, made sure I had gloves, and slid the outside door open. I trudged in knee-deep snow to my Yukikaki station. The morning was sullen and dark. It was snowing at 6 a.m. Muffled sounds greeted me, and the air had that extra clean smell it gets when it snows. A few men had already started shoveling, and I joined in the line. They had a pattern and worked hard, but paced themselves, as the job would take some time. We shoveled our way down the narrow, steep street, coming up from the highway. We started back up another lane, branched off, and did another. They told me to hold off as I started to shovel the sled run for the village kids. By the time I got back in line and shoved a couple more shovels of snow, the work was over. Everyone looked at each other to verify that we were finished. I was a little sweaty from the work and was busy knocking off the ice frozen on my shovel as the group started to disperse. No one spoke. I looked up and saw what I had been looking for. Almost in unison, the Yukikaki grew, gave me a short series of head nods as the informal form of a bow. The people here are traditional in many ways. I don't know how many times I did Yukikaki, but it wasn't many. Spring was coming, and often the snow mixed with freezing rain didn't accumulate on the roads. During the spring and summer, Yukikaki switched to sweeping the streets. Each house produced an able-bodied person with a broom, and altogether the citizens would sweep the streets of the town. 
I was glad to take part on a Yukikaki day. I couldn't imagine something like this in the towns I'd grown up in. I could only imagine the excuses everyone would come up with. In my hometown, we didn't even know all my neighbors. But I grew up in California, not in the snowy mountains of Japan. I remember eating make-it-yourself sushi from a cauldron of steaming rice and a large platter of sashimi. We ate while we sat on the floor with the kotatsu turned up to high in the tiny kitchen of the Kamijo family. We learned the Japanese words for disposable diapers, mother's milk, and things are expensive. Those gray yukikaki mornings come to mind, and I think of the goodness of sweat mixed with snow and the warm hospitality of our hosts. <laughs>